We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And that will do it. The Hornets for a fourth straight year have defeated the Golden State Warriors. And for those of you who are students of history, with this win, the Hornets now lead the all-time series against one of the charter members of the NBA, the Golden State Warriors. What a bounce-back game on a back-to-back had won a overtime game in quite a while. February of 2021. That's a month of Sunday. And well deserved. Well earned, well deserved, well played. They just executed down the stretch. Big plays by Dennis Smith Jr. and PJ. All right. Welcome, Hornets fans. This is Richie, and welcome to another Buzzbeat, a Charlotte Hornets podcast. Uh, Since we last recorded, the Hornets lost an overtime game against the Knicks, a game in which they could have stolen uh, a game on the road in regulation, uh, but they ended up losing in overtime. Then they lost to the Magic on Friday night on a first of a back-to-back, and then they came out victorious in overtime against the Warriors uh, last night, Saturday night. I'm recording this on a Sunday morning. Uh, This was their first overtime win since 2021. Uh, A lot of uh, heartbreak when it comes to those last five minutes of the extra period. On today's episode, I wanted to recap the weekend games and get into some other stuff as well. Before starting, I wanted to remind everyone to make sure that they take time to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if they haven't done so already. That helps us out a lot. And I wanted to promote BuzzBeat Plus, early access to episodes like this one. You get ad-free episodes, and we'll pull out the occasional episode that only exists on the BuzzBeat Plus feed. So you can visit buzzbeat.substack.com to check that out. So let's start with the game on Friday night, a game in which I'm sure many Hornets fans probably maybe had penciled in as a win, and it was a... 0-5 Orlando team that they were playing in Orlando. And I just kind of want to briefly touch upon this game. Again, LaMelo was out, Rozier was out, and Martin with his quad injury were still out for this game. It was probably the least pleasing game to watch by far. Like, not an enjoyable one whatsoever. 
the Hornets had a little bit of a lead in the first quarter, but once when Orlando made that late run to end the first, they didn't look back. Hornets were just driving into length, losing the ball, and just not creating a ton of advantage. The shots just weren't falling, but it was really more so the lack of the clean looks that were the issue. They couldn't create separation to get off good looks between the length and the defense of Bobo, Wagner, Wendell Carter Jr. It was definitely a struggle uh, for the Hornets. Uh, ben Caro has looked awesome to start the season, and he even gave P.J. Washington some problems. He has uh, a little bit of everything on the ball, playmaking, scoring, rebounding. You know, him and him and Matherin probably have been off to the biggest starts as rookies. And to just kind of quickly go from this game to the Warriors game, I just want to give one thing that I did like and one thing that I disliked in this magic blowout loss and then and then move on to the game from last night. So one thing I did like from Friday's game, and I mentioned this on Twitter and even have a video of this, but we saw a lot of grab-and-go basketball from Jalen McDaniels. And throughout the course of his young career, he has been known as an off-ball player, a cutter, a low usage guy and a guy that's probably going to scrap for some points. But one thing that I'm trying to look out for this season and just for his development is some of that off the dribble stuff. Can he create off the dribble? Even if it's just something real quick, you know, making a couple moves to get to the basket. That's what I'm looking for on Friday. I counted eight different times. Uh, whether that was off a rebound or a made basket where Jalen brought the ball up the court. It's not always, you know, getting the offense into sets. That's not what he does, but it's about getting the defense into scramble mode. It skips a step if he can get the ball off the rebound and take it up the court. And, you know, if, if you're not getting it to a true ball handler, that's fine. Um, it, it's something small, but he did plenty of that on Friday night. And my favorite was when he went coast to coast for a dunk. So I think we should be seeing more of that from Jalen McDaniels. And that's only going to uh, bump up his impact as a player. If he can do just a little bit more than the the cuts and the offensive rebounds and, and scoring in that manner, if he can actually develop some kind of on the ball usage as a basketball player, um, because we know what he can bring on the defensive side too. So you know, he is definitely uh, thriving under Clifford, and, and Clifford definitely trusts him to take the ball up the court. Now, one thing that I did dislike in the Orlando's game, there's probably plenty that you can point to, but the fact that Orlando's length coupled with the Hornets' stagnant offense, it led to some poor shot selection and ugly basketball. Uh, even when they could drive, they had plenty of missed dribbles, bad passes, and turnovers. I do want to throw out like one stat that exemplifies the struggle that they had down in Orlando. The team shot 20 times in the short mid-range, and short mid-range is considered 4 to 14 feet. So analytically, like that's on a points per possession basis. Like That's not the spot that you want to get to. 
mainly. Um, you know, Gordon Hayward could probably score from there, but there's just not a lot of players in the NBA that live and thrive in that range. And the team of those 20 shots that they took there, they only made three of those. So if you're doing math there, three of 20, that's 15% of those shots went in. And I did some research this morning just to kind of make sure that uh, this is correct. I, I could have missed a team, but I went through all the game logs and that is the second lowest percentage of any team this season that shot 15 plus times from that area. Uh, the Pacers shot worse. They went one of 15 versus Brooklyn this season in that four to 14 feet range. But the Hornets, it just seems like they were kind of funneled in that direction. There was a lot of length on the Orlando Magic's side and uh, they just couldn't get off clean looks. A lot of not a lot of ball movement, not a lot of uh, off ball movement. And then when they did get two spots, uh, it just wasn't clean. So that was an ugly game from Friday night. But they did bounce back yesterday on Saturday. Like I said, I'm recording this on a Sunday against the Golden State Warriors. So if you were to look at the schedule beforehand, a second game uh, of the back to back, and a team that is clearly better than the Magic, you would have thought. Okay, the Hornets lost the first game. You could probably just go ahead and chalk it up to back-to-back losses. Uh, But it was the total opposite in this game. The energy was much better. They got off to like a 14-7 start. They had leads to end the first quarter and the second quarter. It was much more free-flowing. And getting clean shots off wasn't an issue as it was against the Magic. Now, I will say that the third quarter was a little bit rough on the defensive end to see that lead slip away, and maybe Hornets fans got into the mode of, oh gosh, here we go again. We had a lead against a team that maybe we shouldn't have had the lead, and they came out really, really strong in that second half, the Warriors did, and it was starting to slip away. But that's where that's where the resilience kicked in for this Charlotte team. They had to withstand... Curry turning it on late and finally making shots from deep. I don't remember when he actually hit his first three, but it felt like it was in the second half. They had to deal with the back and forth nature of the game in the fourth quarter. I think they were down three heading into the final 12 minutes. They had to deal with being down four points with about a minute to play. That's just unheard of for this team to you know overcome a four-point deficit with 60 seconds left to play and that that required them to get stops right they had to deal with an overtime game which they hadn't won one since forever it feels like so I talked about how this team has gonna done a good job of beating the teams that they're supposed to and keeping games competitive against the teams that that, that are better than them They've done that in every game except the one game on Friday versus the Magic. And again, it showed up against Golden State. So there's no moral victories by any means. And I think if the Hornets had lost this game, you could say that they played up to their competition and they played well, which they did. But the fact that they came away with a victory after the back and forth nature, after letting the lead slip away in that third quarter. It says a lot about this team and how they're bought in uh, under Steve Clifford. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. So, what I'm going to do to recap this game is I'm going to first start with some of the minor players, but wanted to mention their names first and their impact before I get to the big three performers of the game against the Warriors. So let's start with Plumley. Plumley, very polarizing player among the Hornets community, and I personally feel that he is a little bit over-criticized uh, when it comes to that. But he just attempted four shots uh, in the game, but that's clearly not where you're getting your bang for your buck when it comes to his impact. He actually finished with nine rebounds and seven assists, and his passing ability is his most useful skill on this team. He had a backdoor pass early in the game in transition to P.J. Washington for an assist. And it feels like if he is dribbling up in transition, it feels like he's either going to make a very good play like the one that he did in the first quarter with pj washington if he dribbles at you it makes sense like you just go back door if, if, he, if he is dribbling at you and you're on the wing if you make that cut he has no problem with making that pass now it might go out of bounds it might be a little bit too far off the fingertips but he's not going to shy away from that pass or sometimes when he does this and dribbles in transition it does stall out from time to time on occasion so Plumley had that going for him. There was some hack of Plumley too in that final quarter. And for the most part, he went one for two. I think one time he might have gone over two. So one point per possession is obviously very solid, uh, but that's something that teams are going to start to look into uh, as Plumley is not a good free throw shooter. And I, I think at one point Clifford had to take him off the court because they kept on doing that. But now something underrated about that, I, I mean, 
some silver lining to it that, you know, I know it was late in overtime, but Draymond Green did foul out because he was one, he was over aggressive, uh, but he did have maybe one, maybe two of those intentional fouls on Plumlee in that fourth quarter. So there are some drawbacks to that. It puts the it puts the Hornets in the bonus earlier, and also it can potentially foul out opposing players because there's just silly fouls, even if it leads to, you know, one of two from the free throw line. Another player that I want to mention is Nick Richards. I think that he needs to be a little bit more a part of the rotation moving forward. Maybe closer to 21, 22, 23 minutes of the game. He doesn't necessarily have to play half the game with Mason playing the other, but he's got to get real close. He only played 19 minutes against the Warriors in a game that went five extra minutes. So that wasn't even, you know, it was close to half the game, but it wasn't to the point to where it was balanced. He outplayed James Wiseman in the minutes that they battled each other head to head. He was dropping like crazy against Wiseman in pick and roll situations, forcing him to make a play in the middle of the court, which he hasn't proven to be able to do in his young career. And I think the biggest thing with Richards, and we saw it again against the Warriors, is he had, well, first off, he had a huge play when it, in terms of getting positioning behind Wiseman. Uh, there was a pick and roll where he set a screen, and Wiseman, who was obviously guarding Richards, was dropping and trying to defend two players at once. I want to say it was uh, Teo Maladon was the ball handler. And when Teo was driving and weaving, it was then that Richards got behind Wiseman. And the shot that missed, he was able to get the offensive rebound. He does a very good job of going for the rebound at the highest part and getting it at its peak. And he drew the and one, I believe even converted the free throw. So I talk about this a lot, like, you know, outside of his pick and roll offense, which I've talked about before, I think he's a very underrated pick and roll big. That has been his biggest asset is his positioning on the court. Now, whether that is in transition where he is just running down the middle of the court and trying to beat the opposing big down the middle, and that way he can seal his man on his back and they can throw a pass over the top to where he can catch it and there's no defender between him and the basket. Or it's something like this where he sets a pick and roll and the big that is guarding him is on the wrong side uh, of a shot attempt and Nick Richards has that positioning to where obviously he can grab the offensive rebound and, and go back up. So like I said, I would like to see him play closer to 21, 22 minutes a game. Under 20 just doesn't do it for me. I think he's just making too much of an impact for him to be playing under 20 minutes a game, especially in an overtime game, right? Uh, McDaniels, I mentioned him a little bit in the Orlando. Not a ton to take away from his game from Jalen. The rebounding was awesome as he led the team with 11. I'm trying to think of some moments that he had in this game that stood out, and I think two of them happened late in the game. He had a baseline jumper in the fourth quarter, but really the biggest... And probably the most clutch shot of the game from anyone was in overtime to take the three-point lead. He and PJ were setting a double ball screen for DSJ, and it gave DSJ the option to use either one. And he took it off PJ's screen. And as all the action is going towards the rim, DSJ's man and PJ's man as well, Jalen kind of fades to the wing. DSJ kicks it out to him, 
biggest moment in overtime uh, and took the lead for good for the Hornets as he put the Hornets up three with that left wing three by McDaniels. But, you know, other than that, the rebounding and, that, and those big shots towards the end, not much to talk about. Kelly Oubre against his former team, he was making three-point shots. He actually scored off a pick and roll as a ball handler, which is not something that sounds right saying. I feel like, I feel like he's actually been playing as a ball handler with the pick and roll more so this season than he did last. It just doesn't seem like a skill or something that I would have tapped into, but it's something that we're seeing. He's also very unafraid to take shots late. He doesn't lack in confidence by any means. And I think that was very evident in just some of the celebrations you saw out of him. And I don't know if he was taking it to heart because it was you know, his, an old team of his, but you see that on a night-to-night basis where he can just kind of get in his own zone and start celebrating and the confidence is flowing. And, you know, obviously if he's making shots, he's going to do any and every celebration to the opposing team. He had 18 points and was three of seven from deep. It wasn't necessarily a game where he went crazy by any means, but still a solid one from him. And then I, I want to get to the most pleasant surprise on this team, this season and obviously it's six games into the season and that's been Teo Maladon. His defense, his three-point shooting have been his biggest asset so far and he didn't necessarily show it for this full game but there were spurts and it's, it's going to be interesting to see if there's a way when the Hornets are at full health if he and I, and I personally feel this way if he can replace Book Knight in the rotation instead of taking over DSJ. I definitely don't think he's been better than DSJ, so I think that's out of the equation here. So that role, the backup point guard role, I think is pretty solidified right now. I do think if you're going to try to ride the hot hand in the backcourt, and Book Knight just isn't your guy right now. You know, different positions, obviously. Book Knight, more of an off guard, but I think you can make it work with full health, where Teo is higher on the pecking order and with Cody Martin coming back into the picture when he is healthy, you know, you do have another two guard off the bench with Martin. So I think Rozier and Martin at the two guard is probably enough. And then Teo needs to be seeing minutes over book nine. So it's interesting. Another late acquisition, a two way acquisition with Teo Maladon and he has shined just like DSJ. So we're going to finish with the top three performers of this win in overtime against the Warriors in no particular order. I'm going to start with Gordon Hayward. He has been Charlotte's best player, in my view, in these first six games. He's been scoring on all three levels, and he continues to impress with his facilitation, something that is sorely needed with LaMelo Ball out Uh, with his injury and the game started off in a way that you know obviously Gordon Hayward would just love to draw up it was so typical of him first shot of the game pull up mid-range off of a curl to the free throw line his second shot of the game was a DHO with Plumlee another mid-range make his third shot of the game was another mid-range pull up and then his fourth mid-range shot was on an off-ball cut across you know east to west across the paint And so 
you know, when you think of Gordon Hayward, you think of that area of the court and his first four shots were all makes in the mid range. He also had a pair of plays late in the second quarter where he just makes everything look so easy. Uh, The first play that I wanted to mention, he was weaving back and forth, just trying to get the handoff from Plumlee. Then, after he finally receives it, he dribbles the lane and finishes it as he's fading to the baseline. And I noted just, just the energy that it took to get off that shot was exhausting to watch. And I think he made it look easier than it really was. And clearly, his athleticism has has waned over the years, right? Like with his injuries and just him not being an athletic guy really to begin with, but his craft has not. Like his craft has definitely not waned over the years and it's still there and where it needs to be. And the number two uh, in the second quarter, I think it was the next possession, he realizes DSJ is coming off a screen. DSJ, I believe, is on the left side of the court coming to the middle of the court. And Hayward's man, Clay, has to take one step to the inside. And that's when Hayward times his cut perfectly to the hoop. And DSJ makes the pass right behind the back of Clay. Clay has to turn around. He's too far removed from the play. And then Hayward actually stops and is able to draw some contact and get the and one through Draymond Green. So, again, heady plays by Hayward crafty play he's going to rely a lot on getting shots off even if there's not a lot of separation uh in the mid-range is where he thrives he you know he kind of slowed down scoring wise in the second half but overall just another solid game for Hayward and I think he's done a much better job finishing around the rim this season compared to past several seasons it feels like he's missed some buckets at the rim the past couple of years where you know, he, he gets in his head, it's mental, he overthinks it, it's it's ones that he should make, and I know it's early, but he's actually hit 15 of 19 attempts uh, at the rim this season. All right, the next performer that we have to point to in this game was DSJ. If you were to ask me, you know, after the first or second quarter about DSJ, there probably wouldn't be a ton to talk about, but things changed when it flipped over to those last 24 minutes in overtime. He hit some timely shots in the second half. He hit a couple of threes in the third quarter when the Warriors were making their run and even had a nice little touch alley-oop to Richards. But his biggest shots in this game were two late buckets at the hoop. Number one, he made a layup to tie the game with under 24 seconds left. And then number two, in overtime, he made a running layup to put the team up five under two minutes to play. And I think there was a foul on the next possession with Curry, but it felt when he made that running layup, put the team up five. Yes, it's still two possessions, but it's not like it's two twos. There there had to be a three that had to be involved. You know, that, that was a very encouraging thing to see. It felt like at that point, the Hornets would win the game. It just felt like the momentum had shifted to their end. And, The biggest thing that we're seeing, not just in this game, but just over the course of these first six games with uh, Dennis Smith Jr., is he's a bright spot on the defensive end. He is able to body guards up, body wings and forwards up to a point to where he's preventing interior drives. But we can't talk enough about that final possession and regulation where 
he made it very difficult for Curry to gain ground on him. So he had just made the layup to tie the game, like I said, under 24 seconds to play. So there's one shot left, and he just knows when to kind of poke at the ball but not take himself out of the play. He's shown great footwork in the way he drop steps and recovers. And DSJ, he finished with a near triple-double in this game, and I, I would not have expected that had you asked me after the first quarter and a half two quarters everything switched for him and it was that slow and steady play and turning things on towards the end of the game 13 points nine assists and eight rebounds and then the man of the game I guess if you want to call him that is PJ Washington again he kind of like DSJ was more of a slow and steady build here one of my favorite plays from PJ in this game was when he caught the ball in the left corner in the first quarter and he just bolts baseline on I think it was Jonathan Kaminga and beat him to the hoop for an and one. Some of the off the dribble stuff that we've seen earlier in the season uh, has seemed to take a dip recently and he was taking some of those shots off the bounce and they were just they were off especially early on. But that's just an added bonus to me for for a guy like PJ. I think over the course of his young career, he's been more of a low usage pick and pop ball mover, but he's still a positive impact guy because of what he can do as a defender. But where I thought he got things going was in the fourth quarter and in overtime. And when things mattered, he showed up. The first play of the fourth quarter obviously was designed by Clifford where he sets a Ram screen Uh, for Jalen McDaniels, and after McDaniels sets the ghost screen on the ball handler, P.J. goes and and sets a ball screen, I think, for DSJ. He slips and hits a tough floater, and that seemed to kind of start to pick things up for P.J. He cut the lead to, I think, two under a minute uh, in regulation after getting Clay switched on to him. Another after-timeout play that got P.J. in an advantageous position. He gets the pass from Hayward, and you know obviously he's in a promising position with an undersized uh, player on him and, and gets a basket near the hoop. And I think they made a mention of this, but P.J. won three jump balls in overtime. I mean, that, that feels like it has to be a record. I think one of those came off of a, a challenge by Golden State where they did win the challenge, but because there was not a clear-cut possession, they had to jump it up at midcourt, and, and P.J. won that. So Washington, like I said, like, like DSJ, was a steady, slow build. He finished with 31 points on the game, 16 of those coming in the second half and overtime. And I'm going to go ahead and end this episode on a couple different things. I'm going to end on some over-unders that was sent to me by uh, a user on Twitter, Jake G. And so he shot over a couple things to me. For Nick Richards, he says, over-under 15 and a half starts. I guess it depends on if Plumlee gets traded. This makes this answer way easier. And even though I predicted that... Plumley would get traded. I'm starting to feel less confident that that could happen. It's all going to depend on the record for the Hornets and how close they can stay around 500. Also, too, if Plumley is traded, does that signal that the Hornets are kind of shifting towards a youth movement? And not that Nick Richards is old by any means, but would that say that Mark Williams should start? So I don't know. I'll take the under, though. I think 15 and a half starts for Richards feels tempting. 
Uh, but that probably means that Mason, if, I, if I'm taking the if I'm taking the under, that probably means Mason is probably on the team a little bit longer than most would anticipate. Uh, JT Thor, he sent over and over under 14 and a half minutes per game. I'm going to go under on this one too. He's currently averaging 11 and a half minutes per game, and I actually think that will go down. I don't think that's going to go up over the course of the season. I think when players get healthy, his spot will get squeezed a bit. I still think that Clifford likes him. He seems like a prototypical player that Clifford would like, but his shot just isn't doing anything right now. He's had glimpses, obviously, of rebounding and defense, but I just have a feeling that he might be on the outside of the rotation when everyone is back healthy. Obviously, the players that are coming back don't necessarily fill his position, but you can only play so many players uh, in a game and start staggering some lineups, and JT Thor just might not be there enough to get 14 and a half minutes a game. Uh, so he's currently at 11 and a half. I feel like, if anything, it's going to go down. All right, next over-under he sent. Ubre over-under 4.5 drives per game. Seems he has a new emphasis on not settling for threes, he says. So, yes, I would agree. I'm going to say over on this. I'm taking the over uh, because I think he has bought into the idea about driving to the hoop, drawing fouls, and trying to score there. I think in years past, especially last season, he would just kind of hang out around the three-point line, and if he would catch it, he would just jack up a three and you're seeing a more concerted effort from him to not only do something other than that but also get to the rim and be aggressive in that way he's not a guy that I think you know has the the tightest of handles by any means but just being decisive and getting to the rim uh, that's going to do him wonders so four and a half drives per game that's probably right where it's going to be uh, but I'm going to take the over there just because I think he's going to buy in. And I, I think, I guess, I guess the longer the Hornets stay close to that 500 mark, I can see him buying into it more and realizing that what he is doing is working for the team. If the team's performance starts to dip a little bit, then I could also see Ubre being the type of guy that says, okay, at this point, let me just start jacking up threes and not driving too to the rim, but I'll go over. Last one he sent me was James Booknight over under 9.5 points per game. Yeah, that's 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 under. <laughs> I don't I don't even think he's gonna get 9.5 minutes per game. Uh he just seems like a guy that's outside the rotation right now. And when Ball and Martin gets back. I just don't see a spot for him. I don't see a spot for him. And that kind of leads me to my next my next quick topic before I wrap up here. And that goes to my rotation. I would love to hear uh, anyone's rotation with the Hornets when they get fully healthy. I don't even see Book Knight in the top 10. I don't. So you've got your starting five with Ball, Rozier, Hayward, PJ, and Mason as of now, right? And then... You start thinking about the players that are going to need to see minutes on the court. Cody Martin, uh, six-man, McDaniels, Oubre, like those three right there definitely need to see minutes. You can make a case that Richards obviously got to be in that top nine. And then number 10, DSJ, you need a backup point guard. So that's 10 players right there. 
And I haven't even mentioned Teo Maladon, who I think at the 11th man would get more minutes over James Booknight. So I don't think that Booknight is going to see a ton of minutes as the season progresses. I could be totally wrong on that, but he is just not showing a ton of positive signs right now. Shots not falling. And it just seems like mentally he's not in the right space right now. And it's going to take a lot for his confidence to kind of regain and get to the point to where he feels confident and comfortable with what he's doing out on the basketball court. Some days he's not taking shots. Other days he is jacking up every shot that comes his way. But regardless, whether he's not being used the right way, whether he's not being efficient enough, he's just not being a productive player to where I think Clifford sees him as a guy that is going to be part of a 10-man rotation moving forward. So I think we will go ahead and wrap here. I do want to make a quick mention of the schedule. The Hornets play the Kings on Monday. So by the time you're listening to this, it's probably tonight they play the Kings in Charlotte. And then they go to Chicago on Wednesday to play the Bulls, Grizzlies on Friday, and then the Nets Saturday. Another back-to-back Friday-Saturday type of game. So those are four games right there that I think the goal for the Hornets, obviously the goal is always to win all four, but realistically the goal for those four would be to split those games and then put Charlotte at 5-5. Five and five. All right, guys. Uh, This is Richie. I appreciate you guys tuning in to a solo podcast and take care. Go Hornets.